Please bow your heads with me. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful to be with each other today. We acknowledge that you are here with us to encourage, to exhort, to correct, to strengthen. Lord, to be our all in all, to point us to the glory and majesty of your Son. May he be exalted in the time we spend in your word today, that your people may be edified and strengthened in their faith. In Jesus' name. All right. Well, it's good to be with you all today. We normally would continue our study in the book of Daniel, but just a brief topical segue to continue to prune ourselves by the application of God's Word, and plus this is a continuation of my Sunday school, which I meant to uh, finish uh, last Lord's Day, and surprise, surprise, did not succeed. So why not preach? Why not preach this? This is something I'm pretty passionate about and something that I hope especially the men in the church would be passionate about as well. But even before I get started on this, I think and I, and, I, and I thought of, you know, I tried to resist, but sometimes I just, you, you, you need to hear from your, your elders and leaders regarding certain cultural commentary, and I will already concede that many very able pastors and theologians that have a much larger voice in the culture than I do have already addressed this, and it has to do with this whole issue of he gets us. And I, and I believe that it is appropriate for me to at least maybe for a minute or two uh, address this um, so, that it is, uh, so that it is addressed. The whole he gets us thing, if you bothered to watch, there's a sport called football and there's this big game every year called the Super Bowl. And uh, it is more, more famous than the game is the actual commercials. And so... I guess some, some organization sought to give Jesus a little bit of the limelight, and so they produced this commercial called He Gets Us, hasn't, what isn't the first one. There are billboards um, popping up around the country as, as, as well, and that's the whole issue, is that Jesus gets us. And what I, what I take that to mean is that, they're, is that they are presenting the Lord Jesus as this empathetic person. He understands us. He sympathizes with our plights. And that is meant to be an encouragement. However, the way that it is presented, I will go out on a limb to say that it is a very truncated view of our understanding of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. I believe the intent is, and I think it can be demonstrated by the way they present Christ, as a Christ that is much more palatable, much more relatable, much more relevant, one which puts aside the sin and judgment, one which puts aside his kingship and his right to rule over our lives, his right to be worshipped, his right to be trusted in, his right to be adored and seen as precious above all earthly things, and then some. I think it is a cheap knockoff of the Jesus of Scripture that is being presented. I will say that. And I, there's many other things I can say, but I do want to add this. We have to go beyond this notion that Christ somehow gets us. That is not the marvel of the gospel, right? The, we, I think, I think that the intent there is to, is to kind of give us some kind of uh, succor or comfort, right? Or even amazement, like, wow, this is Jesus. Yeah, he gets us. And that's nothing new. Of course he gets us. But it's almost like 
they're trying to make something very profound and amazing out of that. And I want to say this to you, even by way of encouragement. The real amazing thing, the real marvel about the gospel and about Jesus himself is that he gets us and then he wants anything to do with us at all. That's the real marvel of the gospel. He does get us. He gets us and does not condemn us. Jesus is God in the flesh. He understands our hearts. He understands and sees all of the filthiness, all of the sin, all of the corruption, and yet still wants something to do with us. That is the real marvel of grace. That gets at the heart of what we believe. Not merely that he gets us. He gets us and does not condemn us. Further, he gets us and actually identifies with us. It should shock us that the Lord Jesus actually gets us and understands us and then would actually identify with needy sinners. That he would take upon himself our sin, really being condemned as a sinner, being treated like we deserve to be treated so that we in turn can be treated like Jesus himself deserves to be treated. That's the marvel of the gospel. He gives us his righteousness, even though we are ungodly and unrighteous. Finally, the marvel of the gospel is not that Christ gets us. It's that we get him. We receive him by faith as a most precious and unsurpassed gift and treasure. So do not be taken in by a message which falls woefully short of the way that Scripture presents our Lord and Savior. It is, there is much more to Jesus than the fact that he gets us. It is the fact that he gets us and saves us. That is all. Today we are talking about, <laughs> we are talking about holy ambition, and this is the, the sermon version of this, and you know, I thought it would be kind of enjoyable. I mean, I actually really enjoy talking about this. I, I do not want to uh, shepherd you guys in a way or instruct you, you guys in a way where I present mediocrity as something that is advisable or acceptable. I want us to be a church that is preoccupied with the, not only the pursuit, but also the attainment of excellence. I want the very things that we do in all of life to point to the fact that we serve a higher purpose, that we serve the Lord of the universe, right? We serve a higher king, that we adhere to a higher standard. And I would even say that ambition is a good thing. It just needs to be understood and used in a biblical fashion. And as I mentioned last Lord's Day, when I talk about ambition, it's meant more for men, because I am a man, so I, so I believe that I can speak more adequately and clearly to men who I believe severely lack ambition, or they simply have a misplaced ambition. And I would say also that it seems that because we are made in the image of God, ambition is simply part of our nature. And to go through what we have covered very quickly... We described ambition as an earnest desire for some type of achievement or distinction, as power, honor, fame, or wealth, and the willingness to strive for its attainment. So I won't go through all the definitions that I did last Lord's Day, but I will say that, we, that, that desiring achieve, achievement or distinction is in and of itself a good thing. 
depending on the object of that achievement or the reason or motivation for that distinction. What do we hope to achieve in this life? We want to achieve anything that, that helps us point others to Christ. That's a very simple way of putting it. What is the distinction that we desire? Well, we want to be distinct as those who, who do our work with excellence so that the Lord says, well done, good and faithful servant. So there is nothing wrong with having a certain kind of distinction. What matters is why, right? What do we want to be distinguished for? What do we want to achieve? What do we hope to achieve in this life? It's worth saying because I think we are automatically suspicious of a desire for achievement. We hear the word ambition, and we automatically, many of us do, we question the motives. Why is that person ambitious? Why does that person seem to be outputting um, more energy, more time to specific things? And why is that person, why do they have the nerve to tell me that I ought to do the same? And that is what we hope to discover. I don't want us to be suspicious of ambition. I don't want us to be afraid of achievement or distinction. What I do want us to be concerned with is, is the why of the achievement, the, even the what of the achievement, the achievement. The motivations matter. And that's, that's the deal with most things per, pertaining to the, the Christian life. It's the reason, it's the motivation that matters. It's not the thing in and of itself. And I think ambition is one of those things that kind of reigns supreme as something we should be suspicious of. And I'm saying no. But what are we ambitious for? What are we putting our energy toward? So without over-defining our terms and kind of getting lost in over-defining things, we can at least understand that as, as an, initial, uh, an initial definition of the term. Here's the other thing, is understanding that ambition affects everything. Ambition affects our, our, our mind. Ambition requires focus. We have to think about the thing for which we are ambitious. It is also emotional. All of us at some point in time have expressed or dealt with the frustration of failure, of, of not achieving a particular goal. So ambition affects the emotions. It also affects the, the moral compass. Ambition is a moral choice. That's what it reflects. We have to be ambitious for the right things, as we've mentioned again and again. We want to be ambitious for the things that are important to the Lord, that matter to Him, and the same things are to matter to us. Here's the other thing. Here's where it comes down to the physical response. Ambition affects practical effort. The more important something is to you, the more time, energy, thought, money you will put toward that thing. It requires physical exertion. There's no getting around that. And so that brings up the question, what do we, then what do we do with ambition? What do we do with those desires that seem to be innate in the human experience as image bearers? We have to guide it rightly. We have to guide it according to Scripture. We have to guide it also for the glory of God. Another category, roadblocks to ambition we covered. I'll, I'll get through these very quickly. We've talked about there are several why, why, why are we afraid of ambition? Why are we afraid of striving? Why are we afraid of uh, applying ourselves toward excellence? First is ignorance. We simply don't understand what it means to be biblically ambitious. 
We think of ambition as worldly, right? If you, if you are ambitious about something, if you are passionate about something, even the accumulation of material wealth, because that's where most of the displeasure lies, ambition is somehow worldly. We are suspicious of the person who is ambitious. They must be worldly. They must not be thinking about heavenly things. They're only thinking about earthly things. Another one is the government. Well, if I really go for it, if I really put myself out there, if I really get after it, Uncle Sam... My crazy drunk uncle is just going to come and take all the things that I've worked for. Yes, there is a sense in which taxation is theft. But then the follow-up question is, are we going to let that stop us from, from pursuing good things in the name of the kingdom? Sometimes it does require a little, different eras may require, different cultures may require a little more grit, a little more, more of a time investment. Uh, the endurance of a little more frustration sometimes a lot. And I believe that we, we live in a culture where, yes, we are still able to prosper. It is more difficult because of taxation, but it is not impossible. And we have to look beyond the government. The government, which even though it fashions itself as God, is not God. We serve the true and living God, and we have to look at our, at our earthly pursuits in light of His kingship, in light of His governance, not in light of the governance of Washington. Laziness, that's another one, another big one. We just, we, just, we just lack ambition. We don't want to go the extra mile. We don't want to apply ourselves. We want to do the easiest thing possible. That's tragic, especially among men. We do live in a generation of ambitiousless, lazy men, which follows with contentment. Contentment, in scare quotes, it's an ungodly kind of contentment which is satisfied with minimal effort. It's an ungodly kind of contentment which faces disappointment and failure with surrender rather than persevering through the difficulties and trusting the Lord for the outcome. Finally, fear. This may be the biggest one. The biggest roadblock to ambition is simply a fear. Fear of failure, failure of being misunderstood, right? I'm ambitious. This, this other brother in Christ thinks I'm worldly or fleshly or carnal because I am ambitious. I don't want them to think that, so I'm going to stop being ambitious, right? It is not what man thinks about you. It is what God thinks about you. Fear of becoming an idolater. I would say this. We have the roadblocks in Scripture which guard us, which guard our hearts from idolatry. And here's the thing we have to know, Christians, is that we are a new creation in Christ. Right? We are no longer enslaved to the temptations of idolatry. We are free in Christ to serve the true and living God, to serve Him with our talents, our resources, while living in His kingdom. And He gives every necessary tool to pursue those things. He gives us every necessary tool to be ambitious and yet to also walk blamelessly. So there's a lot we have to go through today, and I think we'll get through it. But just so we understand ambition on one hand in terms of its, its holistic application, we are called to be ambitious people, and I will demonstrate that. But also, it's, it's freeing ourselves from the self-condemnation, which inevitably seems to accompany uh, an ambition for material goods. And I will explain that in further detail in further detail this morning. But here's here we, we, we dealt with some foundational texts, and I and I really think that this is key to review. And this simply demonstrates that even in the human experience, being an image bearer of God, in order to faithfully uphold that image, means that we are ambitious. 
means that we are passionate about the glory of God and the expansion of His kingdom. And I think a good New Testament foundational text is found in Titus 2.14, where Paul speaks of Christ Jesus. And he's really talking about the point of the gospel, the point of the grace of God being revealed. And he says this, speaks of Christ Jesus who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for his own possession. Okay, so far so good. He's bought us back from the slavery to sin. He's he's purified us for his own possession, right? We belong to him. He gets us. We understand that. But now, what are we created unto? Zealous for good works, so that we would be a people not only who belong to him, but there is a particular attitude that is ingrained in this new creation in Christ, and that is that we are zealous for good deeds. We are not We are not neutral or passive toward good deeds. We are passionate about good deeds. Performing good deeds and then spurring one another on to love and good deeds is part and parcel of being a Christian. It's built in to everyone who has been born again. We are zealous for good deeds, not merely zealous for our own glory or our own name, but no, zealous for the name of God, zealous for the glory of God, and zealous for good deeds. Right there underscores, I think, very poignantly, the ambition of the Christian. We know that we are at least to be ambitious for doing good things in the name of God. We've talked about the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is a basic part of the calling of the believer in Jesus Christ. This is, it's, God doesn't call us to a passive lifestyle or a neutral lifestyle. He calls us to a passionate lifestyle. A life which is passionate for Him. When He says, love, love the Lord with all your might, right? We talked about that last Lord's Day. Love Him with all your muchness, with everything that you are. Love Him with all your very, that is to say, literally. That's what we call holy ambition. See, the problem isn't that the Christian is passionate. The problem is simply being passionate for the wrong things. Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or wisdom or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are, are going. So whatever we do, whatever, whatever our hand finds to do, and I would add to that, whatever the Lord gives you as a responsibility while you are here on earth, whatever your mission is, whatever the Lord calls you specifically to do, do with all your might. Because when you're dead, you can't do it anymore. So make the most of what the Lord has given you. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Does that sound passive to you? Does that sound like minimalistic Christianity to you? Does that sound like mediocrity to you? I'm trying to get it fixed in our mind that the, the calling to be a Christian and to live the Christian life is an exceedingly high calling and frees us from the low expectations and the wrong expectations. And the setting of mediocrity is our standard. You think about it. Right now, we we live in a very mediocre culture, and no wonder, because our elected representatives are very mediocre people. They don't understand excellence. Most of them don't understand righteousness. 
Most of them don't understand leading by a godly example. They don't understand justice and truth. They don't understand the lordship of Jesus Christ and his right to rule all things. So why are we making them our standard? I mean, really, the, who, who, is, who our elected officials are is a reflection of our culture and where it's gone and where it's going. And this is where Christians come in to not only pursue excellence, but to lead in that excellence, to set an example in that excellence. And so we have those foundational texts seeing that ambition, the pursuit of excellence, even the pursuit of goods is a good thing. But also undergirding that, informing it constantly, is a particular purpose. And we understand that. We do it all to the glory of God. And you think about it, what, what higher motivation is there than that God is glorified, than that God is made known? We should never shrink away from that. We should never be embarrassed by that. Think about the very examples that we have in Scripture. And I think, and I think not only is this an example, but it also lends itself to the inner workings of the heart. So there's sort of a blend in Scripture as it comes to that. And I'll read you several uh, several passages so that we at least get an idea of, of what is going on. But even before that, I, just, I, wanna, I want us to be able to guard our hearts from this minimalistic approach. Because I don't think that Scripture gives us any warrant to ask, what is the least that God expects of me? We don't read that in the narrative of Scripture. We don't, even God does not present life in His kingdom as, what is the least that I can do? I mean, think about this. Here's a, here's a good passage that often comes up. Micah 6.8, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Oh, all right, a list of requirements. I can work with this. All right. What does the Lord require you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Do you realize how out of reach that is? See, we can't look at that as a minimal calling or a minimal requirement. This is something that is impossible without the indwelling Spirit of God. This is not something that is achievable by natural means. It is only achievable by supernatural means. To do justice? What do we care about justice and righteousness if we are outside of Christ, if we don't know God? Who cares? To love kindness or to love mercy, some translations say. How can you love mercy and love kindness when you're so in love with yourself? See, this is only achievable by supernatural means. And then, oh, here's the big one. To walk humbly with your God? How in the world does that happen? When you're, when you're so preoccupied with pursuing self-glory and self-promotion, when you're so attached to your pride, how are you going to walk humbly with your God? That is to say, we can't, we can't view our life in God, our life in Christ, as, as adhering to some kind of minimal standard, especially given the fact that the standard of God has always been perfection. We can't think of perfection as minimal. Absolutely not. But we also shouldn't let perfection and that standard discourage us. And the, and the main reason is that we have the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to us, credited to our account. 
That God looks upon us as if we have lived Christ's perfect life and we can walk in that victory. We can walk empowered by the Holy Spirit knowing that even though this side of eternity, we're never going to act perfectly, but we will be treated as if we did. Then why not go for it? Why not be ambitious for the kingdom of God? Why not try new things? Why not fail and then get up and persevere? I mean, we're without excuse. And God has given us everything we need. So please don't think of life in the kingdom as just trying to reach this list of do's and don'ts, even though there there are do's and there are don'ts. But that's not all that God has to say about life in His kingdom. But let us be ambitious while we are living in God's kingdom. Here's a couple scriptural examples, just so we know that we're not just talking around the issue. But we see, we see uh, the example of ambition through a series of biblical characters. I think, first of all, we see, we see the, the, I guess, the motivation and the purpose of being ambitious, first and foremost, by our Lord. In John 4, 34, it says, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So there, is a, there we have the greatest, most supreme example of all in the life of Christ. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. How do we know that Jesus was passionate about this? Because he saw the work of God as food. What happens if you don't have food? You starve and then you die. And Jesus saw doing the will of God as as something akin to life itself. To do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That takes ambition. Yes, that takes grit. It takes perseverance. And in the case of Jesus, it took a willingness to die. To accomplish the work of the one who sent him, he had to lay his life down in the place of sinners and on their behalf so that his righteousness could be credited to their account, to credit to the account of all who would believe, so that he would satisfy the just demands of God's wrath towards sinners. I mean, we can thank God that as we understand it, Jesus was ambitious by the Apostle Paul. Philippians 3.14, we read him as, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You ever notice that being a Christian is not the world's easiest thing? Being a Christian can be, can be very difficult, and in some cases it can be dangerous. It doesn't always elicit the kind responses of your hearers and your colleagues Sometimes your family even. Some of you in here may have been rejected by your family because you cling to Christ, because He is your King, because He is your Lord. And you know that that can be very difficult and cause a, a, a lot of alienation from people who, who you love. But Paul frames it this way, I press on. I press on, meaning that the, the way is not always free and clear. It's not without its hurdles. It's not without its speed bumps. It's not without its potholes. I mean, you want a great illustration of the Christian life, just drive on any road in Colorado Springs. That's what life in Christ is like. Why won't they fix these darn roads? There's a cost to it, okay? But he presses on. And this is the call to every Christian. We press on, and we can't approach this on pressing toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, just think about that statement. We can't approach that kind of calling 
with, with, with casual passiveness. No, it is something we are called to be passionate about, eager to fulfill. Here's another one. Here's a couple good passages, but even think of the work of eldership. I got this listening to a little talk on this little sermon by Michael Foster, very helpful when he talks about ambition. But he, his, his, uh, his starting text comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3, and he says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. And the word that's used for this, this desire, this aspiration, means a stretching toward, means a strain. So even this call is not approached with, with, with a casual attitude. There is an earnest to, to it. There is, there is deliberation. There is thoughtfulness. There is, there is a true desire of the inner man to do this work. There is a stretching toward. We call that stretching toward ambition. It puts you in a very uncomfortable situation. A situation which is not easy. And yet that is, that is, that is the first characteristic, really, the first qualification from an elder is that we, we desire the work. We stretch toward it. The same word is used in Hebrews eleven sixteen. but as it is, they desire, the context here is heroes of the faith, right? Old Testament saints. It says, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. They desire, they stretch toward, right? There is earnestness applied toward that goal. Think about if we approached it that way, the, the various things that we do for the kingdom of God, if there was a stretching toward, if there was a, a, a passionate desire to achieve those spiritual goals, to fulfill our mission that God has given us to fulfill. And there's no shame in it. There's no shame in being passionate about those things, even if people don't understand. They don't have to understand, right? We do not fear man. We especially do not fear our brothers in Christ who for a time may completely mistake our motives, right? Who may completely assume that because we have ambition, because we have passion about certain things, that somehow we are worldly or fleshly or ungodly or gasp immature, And sometimes they can't be talked out of that, right? We live before God. We live to please Him. We live in light of what He has done. And sometimes, I will say this, sometimes it is a waste of time to try to explain to people why it is you do what you do. Sometimes it is a waste of time to defend yourself. Your conscience does not condemn you. You are living in light of the Word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Then do what God has given you to do, and don't let anyone, even the most well-meaning brother in Christ, talk you out of it. One day they will understand. One day they will understand. But you live to please God. Which is why Paul says this. 2 Corinthians 5.9 Therefore we have as our, as our ambition, whether at home or present, to be pleasing to Him. Again, a baseline, we would call that a baseline ambition. But I would say, wow, that is a very high calling. To be able to please God. Doesn't the Old Testament call our righteous deeds as filthy rags? How do we please God? Well, we can only please God through faith because the Scripture says without faith, it is impossible to please God. We can only please Him by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You can't please God on your own. You can only please Him as you are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God and you are placing faith in Him. 
You are offering your work, whatever that work is that you do, in the name of Jesus Christ. Pleasing God is hard. Pleasing God is an ambitious task, but it can be done with God. Galatians 1.10. And remember, Galatians is, is, is a book where Paul is, is really rebuking very sharply the, the churches in Galatia for accepting very readily and seems very immediately a false gospel, which he says is not another. It's a false gospel. It's not the same. He says in Galatians 1.10, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? See, there's that dichotomy there. There's that dilemma is that sometimes ambition can lead us to try to please men when really the goal is to please God. But that properly frames our ambition. It properly frames our desire that anything we do, it is to please God. And sometimes that means the displeasure of men. Most of the time it does especially the act of preaching, especially evangelism. Those who don't know Christ simply don't understand. They don't get it, right? They don't get Christ. He gets them, but they don't get Him. But we strive to please Him. Here's another one that checks the heart motivation, Philippians 2, 3 through 4. And remember this, if you are, especially if you are ambitious for material wealth, which in and of itself is not a sin. Philippians 2, 3 through 4, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look merely out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And then, of course, he, he gives the example of Christ, right? Have this same attitude that was found in Christ Jesus. What did Jesus do with all that heavenly glory? Well, he stepped out of it, put some eternal prerogatives aside, and he died. He died for his people. So when God has blessed you, I think there is an example set here of sacrificial giving, of sacrificial generosity to give in proportion to how God has blessed you. Paul tells us also in Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another. Some, some translations, I believe this is the verse, says outdo one another, right? Outdo one another. You want some friendly competition? It's not, this is not an episode of spiritual one-upmanship, but to say, hey, each of you, as you belong together as part of the body of Christ, continue to excel in honoring one another. Because when you exercise ambition, it's going to show what you value the most, right? It asks the question, what are you straining toward? What are you reaching out toward? Are you reaching toward the upward call of God in Christ? Or are you only reaching toward those things which make your name great instead of the name of God great? So we at least have these texts which guide our thinking, which demonstrate that ambition is a good thing. It just needs to be used for the right things. And in the whole picture, we use our ambition in order to pursue Christ, to seek His glory, and to seek the expansion of His kingdom. I think that's pretty clear. And to be generous toward others. If those things are the most valuable to us, then ambition is never going to be the problem. And so I think the question comes out inevitably when it comes to ambition, when it comes to you know, our, our, our pursuits in life as well. We've talked about spiritual wealth. What about material wealth? Well, let me say right off the bat, you can try to, I love this, sometimes it's a false dilemma that, you know, there's the spiritual and that's all good. And then there's the material and that, of course, is all bad. No, it all belongs to God. These are good things. His creation is good. What matters is how we view creation and how we use it. Okay. 
And also, I will say that you can, per, you, can, you can make great strides to pursue spiritual things and be a complete unbelieving pagan. You can pursue knowledge of Scripture and use it to lord over people. Right? You can pursue the position of elder and beat the sheep and abuse them and enslave them. Right? So lest you think that just because it has the label spiritual, it must be good. Don't also make the same error and say just because it's material, it must be evil. Right? So what of material wealth? So as long as we maintain that big picture about living before God, living for His honor and glory, concerning ambition, and how we direct it, then material wealth is no threat. You think about, I often think about Abraham. Abraham, father of the faithful, who believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It is thought that he was one of the world's richest men when he was walking around. He had servants, he had flocks, right? He had a private 300-man army. How cool is that? Right? Release the hounds. You got some trouble. I got, I know 300 people, you know. That's pretty remarkable. And he was not seen as bad or greedy because of his wealth. God gave it to him. So being wealthy in and of itself or even pursuing wealth and pursuing a, the, the growth of your material holdings is not a bad thing. In fact, pursuing it can be a good thing. The bad thing is the idolatrous preoccupation with it. We were warned about that with the love of money in 1 Timothy. It's the root of all kinds of evil, but money itself is not evil. And we have to understand, too, we're all different. We're all different. I hope to set some of your guys' minds at ease. Some people work hard because they desire enjoyable things in life. Some of you in here really like cars. Some of you in here really like fast cars. Fast cars are typically very expensive. So is it lawful for you, if you work for it, if you work a little extra, is it lawful for you to go and rebuild that sweet Boss 429 that's been rusting in your garage for the last two decades? Absolutely it is. Even that can be used for God's glory. And the sound it makes is glorious as well. Can a Christian drive a Lamborghini? Can a Christian drive a Ferrari? Yes. Yes, that person can and not sin. Absolutely. You have your liberty in Christ to pursue that. Same thing if you're a truck guy and you want to drive a powerful 4x4 that can dominate the back hills of Colorado. Pursue that. Pursue that with joy, knowing that God has given you that precious gift. It'd be a sin not to. Here's another one we, we don't think of often. Some of you like adventure. Have you, known how exp have you realized how expensive it is to travel these days? It's, it's, doing anything is expensive because by inflation and other reasons. Is it lawful for you to put in an extra hour, sometimes even away from your family, so that you can plan and treat your family to those vacations and getaways so that it doesn't strain you financially? That is lawful. Absolutely it's lawful. Don't condemn yourself for pursuing and even enjoying these things, even though they require late nights, frustrations, and setbacks. These are all good things. The key word here is balance. Make sure that they don't come at the expense of your top priorities in your family. Right? Don't, don't, you know, husbands, if you're working extra hours at the office, one, be faithful. Don't have a wandering eye, right? Be faithful towards your wife. Continue to disciple her. Continue to disciple your kids. Don't neglect spiritual headship. Don't, don't neglect being the lead worshiper of your household, right? 
That's, that's where balance, that's where wisdom and discernment come in. And there's rarely ambition without frustration of some kind. Here's another one, and this is going back to our example of Abraham. Do you desire as an individual for your family, do you want land or, large, or a large house and flocks and herds? Do you desire those things? Do you desire to live on a homestead and butcher your own beef and grow your own gardens? Why not? That is what we call from way back from creation, subduing the earth, putting it down by force, cultivating it, growing things. Also, that is permissible. And I would even encourage you, if you have the resources, to pursue that. I think it makes it much easier for, for the Christian community to, to share with one another when we are self-sustaining to a particular degree. And, they, and, and as, a, as an addition, they don't put all that, you're not going to put the same garbage in your food that, that we buy from the supermarket. So just a little tidbit of wisdom there. It is a good thing. God does not condemn you for things that God has given you freely. So whatever God desires to give you, accept with, an, with the open hand of faith and be thankful, be joyful. Bless the name of the Lord, for He has given you bountifully. And then be a good steward of it. But don't sit there and condemn yourself faithlessly because God has given you abundance. If you desire it and you have the work ethic, energy, and wisdom to pursue those things, then commit your plans to the Lord and trust Him for the outcome. And whatever that outcome is, be content. Contentment is the thing that will guard you against idolatrous pursuits. It will guard you against desiring those things too much, treasuring them above the treasure of Jesus Christ. And so with that, so, so, so we, have, we have the pursuit itself, and those are good pursuits. Now, here are the warnings in Scripture, right? We have to, we have to kind of give you these, these guide rails, things to, to, to check your heart, right? We are still flesh. We are still susceptible to temptation. We, we can still love things too much. But we have to ask ourselves, what does the Bible say about these things, right? How can we guard our own hearts? Well, we have warnings. We have warnings, especially in light of the fact that we are called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ, we are to consider others as better than ourselves. We are warned by Jesus in Mark 4.19 about the, the, the four types of soil. And one of those soils is the, regards the worries of the world, Mark 4.19. The deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, they enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So guard yourself against those things so that the word isn't choked out. Right? You don't want the word to, choke, to be choked out. You want the word to dominate your life and even dominate your pursuit of wealth so that you can dominate the bless you can you can dominate blessing others and bless them freely rather than being preoccupied by greed and selfishness i think a, a key text in this is luke 12 verses 16 through 21 if you want to mark this one down luke 12 16 through 21 and he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man was very productive all right, so far, so good. There's no condemnation for this rich man until now. And he began reasoning to himself. Here's the problem as we start reasoning with ourselves, <laughs> saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. 
This makes makes you second-guess retirement. But God said to him, you fool! This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man, here's the lesson here, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. If you are a rich Christian, you must be rich toward God. Being rich toward God means that you understand that everything that God gave you is His to begin with, and it remains His. You are merely a steward. You are merely a manager. And God will not suffer fools, especially who claim to know Him, who hoard. Right? We are called, we are not called. The funny thing is, is in a sense, the, the rich man sold himself short. Do you realize if he had applied biblical wisdom, he could have multiplied his holdings? But he put them in, but he used his wealth to tear down his barns. Perfectly fine barns. The fact that his barns were overflowing should have pointed him to the abundant goodness of God. But instead of reasoning to himself, oh Lord, you have given me all this, how then can I multiply these things to be a blessing to others and to advance your kingdom and be rich toward you? But nope, I'm going to hoard it, I'm going to keep it to myself, and then I'm going to relax. I'm going to relax, not knowing that that was the day of his day. The day he reasoned that was the day he died. Listen to what John Gill says regarding this passage. Just such a fool is he, and this will be the end, the end of him who employs all his thoughts and spends all his time in amassing to himself worldly riches and wealth, in laying up treasures on earth for himself, for futurity, and makes no use of his earthly substance to be the good of others. So you notice Gill, one of, one of the finest theologians, does not immediately decry the material wealth, the possession of it, or even the amassing of it. It was the amassing of it without being a substance of good to others, without the substance being a good to others. That was the problem. So notice he doesn't make this this false separation between, oh, the heavenly, the eternal, and the earthly and temporary. No, we use the the earthly and temporary for the purpose of eternity and for the purpose of the future. But he says he makes no use of his earthly substance to be the good of others, nor shows any concern for spiritual and eternal riches, but places all his hope, trust, and confidence in uncertain riches. I remember my pastor growing up said, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. And this is what he was talking about. You send it ahead by investing what God has given you in others for the growth of God's kingdom. That's a big warning. Do not hoard, do not amass with a greedy heart. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5. Here's another, here's another one. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. Okay, that is, that is something worth, consideration, worth considering. Don't weary yourself to gain wealth. Can I pursue wealth? Can I gain wealth? Yes. Can I be tired at night? Yes. But we're talking about exhaustion, something that expends all of our energy and usefulness just to gain, just to gain money or material possessions so that we're not really useful for anything else. That's the heart of this passage. So he says, don't even think about it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. Most of us have experienced that. We, we, just, we see an opportunity to gain some wealth, to make a little extra coin, 
and it's gone before we knew it. For, for wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. How are you going to catch an eagle that flies toward the heavens? It's gone. So stop thinking about it. Stop using all of your energy, all of your resources to gain wealth. If the Lord, listen to this, if the Lord wants you to be wealthy, then you will be wealthy. If the Lord does not want you to be wealthy, there is nothing you can do to be wealthy. But if the Lord does make you wealthy, it comes with certain expectations that you are rich toward Him, that you are generous with your brother. 1 Timothy 6, 9-10 through But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I think the same word is used, this desire for wealth, this longing that's used in the, the same word of reaching, that idea of reaching or straining towards something. If you exhaust yourself in doing this, you will pierce yourself with many griefs. And ironically, one of the griefs that many, with which many men pierce themselves in pursuing wealth to the nth degree is poverty. They use everything. They, they may leverage their house or the, 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 the things that God has already given them to steward and lose it all because they, they didn't know when to quit. They weren't content. 1 John 2, 15-17, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So he's not saying do not love material things. He is talking, when he says world here, he's talking about the passing away of the old creation along with the desires that were characteristic of it, right? But we are living in, in the era in which Christ is making by his own power all things new. And so we can use the material goods that God has blessed us with to advance that new creation. He's not saying that material goods in and of themselves are bad. And we know that by verse 16, all that is in the world, right? All that is characteristic of the old creation passing away the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. That is worldliness. That is carnality. That is, that is reminiscent of fleshly desire. This is not from the Father, but is from the world. And that is passing away. But it says the one who does the will of God lives forever. And that includes doing the will of God in accordance with what He has blessed you with couple things to cover here. The whataboutisms. There's always going to be, when we talk about ambition, well, what about this? Here's one that has actually come up quite a bit. And from 1 Timothy 6, 8, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Now, on one hand, Paul is not commanding you to have only the clothes on your back and then live in a collapsible tent. He's not, he's not making an imperative here. He's simply saying that in light of the context of the first century, in which there was heavy persecution over the church, many people were losing their homes, losing their material goods. They were losing a way to make money. They were being marginalized by society, especially if you were a Jew. If you followed Christ, you were seen as the worst of turncoats, and often you're, you were deprived of your property. And, so, and Paul says, so if it comes down to that, you are content 
because the Lord is still giving you a means to survive, even in the midst of heavy persecution. We are not living in an era, in an era of very heavy persecution. We could say it's mounting, but that is not something we look at today and say, oh, that is characteristic of today's society. Everyone hates Christ. We're being chased around town. You know, my house has been lit on fire. All my cattle have been stolen. My bank account's been liquidated or all of my assets have been seized. I don't think any of us can say that right now. But if it ever came down to it, we can still look to heaven and say, God is good. He has provided what I need. But he's not commanding poverty. Proverbs 37 through 9, two things I ask of you, do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I may not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Once again, this is not an imperative. And yet it is wisdom from Proverbs, which says some of you, some of you may have to pray this prayer. This presents a very godly balance. Keeps us from denying God. Keeps us from profaning His name. The two things that the Christian does not want to do. And some of us may come down to this. But it doesn't mean all of us will do these things. Having riches does not mean we are going to deny the Lord. But if, but if that is a temptation of the heart, this is the, pray, the prayer that we pray. And this is the prayer in a very specific individual context. We say that wealth... And pursuing wealth is never the point in and of itself. The question is always, what are we using wealth for? And so the last portion of this message deals with particular questions, and I would say particular heart checks. To just examine our own inner man, to examine our purpose, and I would say even to refresh our purpose. Why? Why are we ambitious? Why are we even ambitious in the context of gaining material wealth? Okay. So once again, think forest trees. We're kind of zooming in, zooming out. One pertains to being ambitious overall for the, for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And one, and it's, again, it's because of the pitfall, one that's a subject to sometimes unjust scrutiny, and that is the pursuit of material wealth. So whichever, whichever it is of these things, ask yourself the following questions. And this is not to limit them, but I'd say you would at least ask yourself these questions. And I think most of them will be obvious to you. But in the pursuit, in your ambitious pursuits, ask, your, ask this question. Does my ambition point people to Christ? I think that's the first and most obvious one. Does my ambition point people to Christ or does it make people completely lose sight of him? Does it make me lose sight of him? Or is everything that I do, including my ambitious pursuits, on display in order to point people to Christ? They say, I, I do what I do. I do things differently. I, I produce an excellent product. I am able to multiply what God has given me because I love the Lord and I want to see His name exalted. Does your ambition point people to Christ? And I mean in anything you do. Let's not think that the most mundane of work and employment is somehow, so, somehow fails to glorify God. Right? So, if you're, a, if you're in computers, if you're in tech, if you write programs, write the best program possible. If you brew beer, you brew the tastiest beer possible and do it in a variety of ways. If you dig ditches, man, you make that ditch beautiful. You dig that ditch with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and dig it for the Lord. If you build something, if you do, if you do plumbing, 
if you do landscaping, whatever you do, do it with excellence. Do it with all your heart so that the result is obvious, so that the results of your hard work are obviously different from the other guy. And I mean that. So that when you are asked, you can easily say, I, I do this because I work for the king. I don't work for man. I don't work to please man. I work to please God. And that includes any kind of work. And attached to that, of course, is my ambition advance the kingdom of God. Are you concerned with kingdom living? That any kind of work you do is ultimately kingdom work? That you see it as valuable to advancing the cause of Christ? And I would say even within that, question number three, does my ambition properly steward the Spirit's gifts? So this is to say, don't squander the things that God has given you. Don't, um, don't hoard the things that God has given you. Rather, using biblical wisdom and the gifts God has given you, use those things to multiply, right? Be, be like the man who God gave 10 talents to, and then you produce 10 talents over time. You have something to, pro- something to display, to present before the master and say, see, Lord, your servant, you gave your servant 10 talents. Behold, here's 10. I didn't want to squander it. I don't want to bring your name dishonor because I just sat on these talents. Are you blessing others in proportion to how God has blessed you? That's another way of properly stewarding the Spirit's gifts. Are you blessing others in proportion to how God has blessed you? And for some of you, that may be a test of character. Right? You may want to hoard that little lecture that God has given you. You may not want to multiply it. You may not want to bless others. But are you blessing? If God has blessed you in abundance, are you blessing others in abundance? Are you investing in abundance in the kingdom of God? Here's one we just covered. But is your product excellent, right? There's quantity, that is multiplication, and there's also quality. It, whatever you do, is it excellent? Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine. 29, do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Man, you talk... Think about, think about that for a minute. How many of us have stood before kings or stood before a politician because of the excellence of the work that we produce? To produce work of this quality worthy of standing or presenting it before a king, you must have ambition. You must have an uncommon drive in your pursuits and achievement. Because most of us do spend our lives standing before obscure men. And that's Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine. But, but I think even understand it in this context is that the work we do, we do stand before the king. We stand before the king of kings and lord of lords. And so we are concerned about pleasing him above all. More than earthly kings. But it sets a, I think it sets a solid example for us to pursue excellence in what we do. So that whenever we stand before a king or a president or a governor, we can make known to them the reason that we do everything that we do, that everything we set our hand to is for the king of kings. Here's another question. Does my ambition, is my ambition such that it prevents me from making excuses? Am I always seeking to opt out? Am I always seeking to pass the buck? Right? Or, am, or am I desirous enough in what I do that it prevents me from always being the guy who says, oh, I can't do it. Not me this time, this guy instead. Or, am I, or does my ambition cause me to step up, right? Even things I may not be very good at, but because I was called upon, 
Yep, I'll do it. And I'll do it to the best of how God has equipped me. We do live in an age of excuse-making and excuse-makers. What distinguishes the Christian when we put those excuses aside and we'll say, here I am, I'll do it. Even if it doesn't bring you recognition, but the main thing is bringing God recognition. And that He is recognized in the work that you do and the standard that you adhere to. And finally, and this has been threaded throughout, does my ambition seek to bless others? Tons of verses about blessing others and the results that follow. But even as early as Deuteronomy 15.7, the, the giving of the law, right? Deuteronomy, the second law. The Lord says this, If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers in any of your towns and your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from your poor brother. Right? See, there's this temptation, I think, when we see poor people or the poor among us, right? To automatically assume that they're lazy. And I think even the old, in the Old Testament, the temptation was God must reject them. They must be guilty of some kind of heinous sin because they're poor. But he says this, don't close your hand from your brother. Don't harden your heart. But you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need and whatever he lacks. And even regarding the releasing of slaves, if you set your servant free, you, you had to overload his donkeys and his oxen. You sent him on this way with a portion of your wealth. You blessed him abundantly. That was, that was the expectation. That was the standard to give him in accordance to his service. Even Jesus says in Luke 16:9, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Right? There is no issue, there is no sin in using the material wealth that God has given you to, to gain friends, to gain influence. I mean, it can, get, it can be a dicey situation, we know, because you don't want to be guilty of bribery. However, the principle stands, if you are wealthy... Use it to bless others. Matthew 5.42, Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Right? I think that's a very simple principle. If someone asks of you, then, then give it to them. If you, if you indeed have the resources. Proverbs 11.25, The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. This can be a real test of faith. In all things we do by faith. Sometimes someone will ask us, ask us for something, right? And we have the resources, but then there's that temptation of our faith faltering where we stop believing at least for a time that the Lord will provide or that He will return what we have given out. But it says here, if a generous man will be prosperous and he who waters will himself will be watered. We give generously knowing that the Lord knows our needs. He will provide He'll give us what we ask when we ask in His name. Proverbs 13.22, this is one of my favorite verses. This is one that really got me thinking about, about extra work. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Let me tell you something, friends. Social security is not that. Social security is a Ponzi scheme. And it is, in some sense, in some ways, it is... It is dreadful that we have to pay into it. Proverbs is very clear here. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And you know, we don't even know what's going to happen to Social Security. Don't stake your future and the future of your children on that. 
Work, even if it takes extra. Apply diligently your work ethic and wisdom so that you can leave an inheritance to your children and your grandchildren, it says. And the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous, it goes on to say. But be that good man. Be that righteous man who toils for a greater purpose beyond yourself who rather than amassing and hoarding wealth and buying yourself all the latest trinkets and toys, you are able to leave a portion of your work. That is your legacy. Spiritual legacies are great as well, right? When we teach our children the Word of God. But guess what's in the Word of God? A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And that is talking about material resources in order to continue to grow and expand and multiply. That's the mark of a good man. I don't know about you, I want to be that good man. And even in today's society, that's going to take a lot of grit, a lot of perseverance. Because every amount, we know that every amount more that you make, the government comes in and takes a little bit of it. And I would say, don't let that dissuade you from that pursuit, from that righteous pursuit of living your, leaving your kids an inheritance. Do it anyway. Don't make, above all things, don't, don't go through life beginning sentences with, but the government. But the government, right? We talked, talked about this last week. We have to think, but God, but God has given me this, and I want to multiply it for the good of my family and my church family. Proverbs 19, 17, one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. Right? That requires trust. Proverbs 22, 9, he who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. Proverbs 28, 27, he who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. And on and on and on about the stewardship of wealth, about amassing wealth so that you can be generous, so that you can give out of your abundance because God has given you abundantly. See, it's always it's wealth, the pursuit of wealth is, again, that's not the end game. We pursue wealth for a greater purpose. We pursue wealth to point people to God as the one who gives generously to his children and blesses, and blesses people. Luke 6.35, here's, an, here's another standard that is raised. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Guess what? The Lord is kind, and un, and, and, and the Lord is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So should you be kind to ungrateful and evil men. So even if you see your neighbor who despises you, who would just rather see the, a world without you, he breaks down. You drive and you drive by him. You stop and you say, hi neighbor, how can I help you out of this pit? Right? It's the same thing in the Old Testament. If your neighbor's ass or your neighbor's ox falls into a pit, you go and you pull your neighbor's ass or ox out of that pit. You don't leave him to his own devices. That's the standard. Man, it takes ambition. It takes holy ambition to love the one who hates you. A supernatural kind of ambition. God asks us to be a blessing to everyone. Not, not, to, not, to, not to show partiality, not to be a respecter of persons. Because God is not like that. He blesses, he blesses the worst of people. That's the mindset we keep calling ourselves back towards. He blessed you, right? God saved you. Imagine who else he can save. Imagine who else he can bless. And he's going to use you as that instrument. 
So don't underestimate how you can be a blessing to that person who just hates your guts. Maybe your neighbor, maybe that person you see in the office who just always gives you that dirty look, who despises your work ethic, who despises your love for Jesus Christ. And you have that, and you, you should be praying for opportunities right now. Oh Lord, just bring something about at some point where I can bless this person. Just bl- bless them so that they are appointed to you, so that their eyes are open, and they embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. Those are the things we should be pr- playing, pr- uh, praying for, and those are the things where we should have in our mind to direct our wealth, to direct our material resources, to be a blessing to others, because in doing that, we bless God, and we put His name on display. And so in all these things, the final question is, am I doing all of these things by faith? Am I trusting the Lord with all of it, even during the lean times? Do I still believe that God is good? Do I still believe that God is generous? Do I still believe that God wants to use me, even if my resources are meager, to be a blessing to others? Do we believe that, and do we believe that God will supply all our needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus? And I certainly hope that that is the case. We are to be zealous for good works, friends. Zealous to be generous with what God has given us. So let, us, let our hearts be renewed today to walk in accordance with that by faith. Let's uh, close our time in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You again for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for creation. We thank You that it's good. We thank You, we thank you that You have put us to work in it. That in Christ... And by the exercise of His power to subject all things to Himself, He is making all things new. And what a privilege we have, God, to live in times like these, though they are difficult and though that we, we, we don't know all the details, You are using us as Your instruments. An instrument of righteousness, a mouthpiece of salvation, but also, Lord, to an instrument of Your heart for others, that You have, that You own all things, and that You have given us all good things to steward, to multiply, to use for Your glory, to be a blessing to others. And I pray, Lord, that You would, that You would prosper Emmaus Road, that You would, that You would change our hearts to the degree that that we can be entrusted with much, that we would be faithful with little at first, but then to be faithful with much so that we can be an even brighter light shining in our community, to be known as a, a local body, though small, that we, can, that we can give generously, that we can step up and take responsibility by faith, that even though we can't see all the resources and and all the things that You give us, Lord, but we know that You are a faithful God and that You desire to use us in Colorado Springs. So help us to be faithful to that end, Lord, and to, and to rejoice in the fruit that is born because You've humbled us to serve Your cause, the cause of Your Son. And it's in His precious name we pray. Amen.